thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. Thank you for caring about us and providing for us. And uh, as Pastor Eric is still sick, we pray for his healing. We pray for Eric Fredrickson, whose heart has given him some terrible problems. Pray that he'd find the medical help he needs and healing. And Lord, uh, may we understand the gospel in your workings better as we continue to learn Acts. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 14, 4 through 7. And I have a slide that if we get to, we can spend a little time dealing with Luther, if we get to that part about the gospel. So, Acts 14, let me read verses 4 and 5. But the population of the city was divided. Remember, they'd been in Iconium. And some were with the Jews, there meaning the Jewish leadership that was opposed to the gospel, the ones who rejected Christ, and some with the apostles. So when an inclination took place on the part of both the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their rulers, to mistreat them, and stoned them, I'll read on. They became aware of it and fled to the cities like Onea, Lystra, and Derby, in the surrounding region, they continued to preach the gospel. So the theme is gospel preaching and then division and persecution. So we see a division here, and we obviously would think immediately of what Jesus said when he said, I did not come to bring peace, but division. Remember that? I don't have the reference right on the tip of my tongue, but I know it's there. And you've probably heard it. It's a pretty famous saying. And one of the things that's so confusing for people that aren't Christians now, and they see Christendom, see One thing that will help you understand these passages in Acts that we have to do some thinking about to put it into present time is that what did not exist when these first gospel preachers went into these areas that never heard the gospel, what did not exist was Christendom. There is no such thing. And what do I mean by Christendom? Official, long-term, politically stable or unstable, as the case may be, groups and buildings and organizations that are called Christian. There was no Christendom. And so the thing that's different for us is that we have one more thing to contend with. All right. What they had to contend with was the Jews who had rejected Christ and the pagans who didn't believe the gospel. And in this case, they got together to attack gospel preachers. So basically, the world out there is against the gospel. And that's the division that happens. The gospel always divides. It divides the redeemed from everybody else. It divides the church from the world. The church is not the world. The Bible says, love not the world or the things of the world. Last Sunday I preached about what those things of the world are. What are they? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The three things that tempted Eve in the garden the three things that Satan used in the wilderness uh, with Jesus to tempt him. Yes. It also divides within the church. Well, that's the problem we have is defining the church. Okay. And so that's why I'm so honored in the last year and some to be preaching Ephesians. Because Ephesians really does define the church. So what we have to do nowadays 
is to get on our minds the biblical definition of the church that's always divided from the world. The church never can be a subset of the world. The church never has peace with the world, but hostility and division. Because it's the very nature of things. Those who are lost are alienated from God. And the one thing that offends everybody is the preaching of a crucified Jewish Messiah. And Paul says that. He said in Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world. Okay? So what we have, if you can get this in your mind, it'll really help you. It'll help you with your relatives. It'll help you in your neighborhoods. It'll help you understand America and a lot of things. That Christendom, in a big sense, is a subset of the world. It is not the church. Now, Luther had to deal with that in his day. Because Christendom, for the most part, up till the Reformation, was Roman Catholicism. And it wasn't hard to see that Roman Catholicism is one big expression of the world. You see all of the things that the world loves on display. And it wasn't really the church, although Luther would affirm that within Rome, there was the invisible church, but those were the people that started listening when Luther and others started preaching the gospel, and they got out once they saw the difference, what the, what the, what the gospel really is. And so after the Reformation, and Eric's been talking about that as he's been going through that series about so-called Calvinism, the big thing that happened that was so sad, but it happened in church history. Church history is providence. Providence contains good and evil. What happened was the Reformed people and the Lutheran people decided they want to set up Christendom. They thought Christendom, does that term make sense to you? How would you say it? How can I best explain that? If you see on the news, they're talking about the world religions. And they'd say, there are how many billion Christians? Have you ever heard that? And so Christianity is the religion of France and the Netherlands and the United States. And so they, they, that's what Christendom is. But anybody who's born of God will look at that whole story and say, no, there aren't two billion. I don't know what the number is. I'm caught lacking the data. But there, we know there aren't that many Christians. But those are members of Christendom. And in some weird way, some of the organizations are so worldly and so without Christ they really don't even have the invisible church within. What's the invisible church? The tr- those who are truly born of God. Because there's nothing there that anybody who was born of God could sit and tolerate for very long. So remember that slide I put up in one of my sermons? I took in front of a Presbyterian church, and their sign proudly said, We are the world. Anybody that knew First John do not love the world or the things of the world, would never put a sign on the front of their church building, we are the world. Because what they're saying is we're not the church. But they don't know what the church is. Jessica. So as the boys and I were studying through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Reformation, there was a period in history where the gospel went out to the world and the cultures were Christianized, but that doesn't mean converted. And at that time, if there was education, it was because the church was doing it. If there was quality health care, it's because the church was doing it. And so these nations were Christianized, 
but not always converted. And it seems like now, when we bring that to today, when people talk about these Christian nations or Christendom, they're talking about nations that have been Christianized versus being outright idolaters. In some ways, it's like Western civilization. Exactly. Yeah, so it almost... And I'm not against Western civilization, by the way. Thank you. I'm not against... Education, health care, hospitals, reasonable civil government. That's how God rules. He draws out the boundaries. And Eric's been preaching on that. Remember? The restraining evil. And it was good that that happened in Providence. Good and evil is determined by the moral law of God in the Bible. But now we have a different thing to deal with as gospel preachers. Because sometimes Christendom becomes the enemy of the gospel. Do you have any more yep. comments? Well, I, um, just one other thought on that. Actually, on our way to church today, we were hearing that the Pope has decided to get behind the Green Initiative, and they've now banned pesticides at the Vatican. And no I was thinking, yep, at the Vatican. So, so, the, so Christendom has now accepted the mission of the world to eliminate the evil pesticides. And so all of these things just kind of go to show that that's not, Christendom is not Christianity. Well, some of the same churches that have the We Are the World sign will put the rainbow sign. Free restoration project. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, so let me, let me get this together. I, I don't want to confuse this. I want this to be... I'm doing this to apply this verse till today. So they had unconverted Jews that rejected the gospel and pagans who rejected the gospel as the enemy of the gospel. There's one more category today, and that's Christendom. Oh, yes. And there have been many cases of gospel preachers removed from churches. And told they're not wanted. I've, I've talked to people like that. It's, it's unbelievable. That that's what happens. If you say, I really believe Christ died for sins. I really believe he literally, historically, went into the grave and rose on the third day and bodily ascended to heaven. I really believe that miracles were done by Christ and his apostles. I really do believe that the word of God is inerrant and inspired and profitable for reproof, correction, and doctrine. I do believe the word of God ought to be taught in the churches to the saints and that that's just standard. That's just what the basic sine qua non of what Christianity is. You're not going to be getting a job in most of Christendom. So just keep that in mind, because I've noticed, uh, Brian and I were talking about before Sunday school, I had an article I wrote on a neogram. In what world would this pagan neogram make sense in a Christian Bible college? And the thought of it is so absurd, it's almost unthinkable. But that's exactly where we found it. And we need to get a biblical definition of the church and a biblical definition of the church, church's message. And that message is the gospel. And I would say that um, the best way to make the local gathering like the invisible church being all those born of God and then a local gathering of people who know God and are born of God. We can't see the heart. God knows who the elect are. We don't. But the more the gospels preach, the more people who don't like it won't tolerate it and they won't come. Okay? And when that happens, there's no such thing as someone born of God who can't hear, stand to hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified and repentance for forgiveness of sins. If you can't stand to hear that, and you don't want to hear it, and I remember people saying that to me when we became a gospel church back in the 80s, the church I was with, why can't you ever preach on anything practical? 
They were sick of it. I don't want to hear all this doctrine. Preach on something practical. I said, well, why would you think forgiveness of sins is impractical? It shows the worldly thinking. Dana. A more contemporary term, a colloquial term for Christendom is churchianity. Churchianity. To, to, to distinguish between true Christianity and Christendom. Okay. That's a good term, churchianity. So there was a division. So I'm just saying this. If gospel is preached today, you may have a division in a church. Remember I illustrated in a sermon recently, the people sent me a tape of them trying to ask the pastor, why would an evangelical pastor tell a, a loving Christian couple to leave the church if they wanted to pre- pre- pass out gospel tracts at a church outreach? Because they don't want to be the church. Can we talk to people that come to church about Christ and forgiveness of sins in the gospel? No, you can't. Can we give them a track? No, you can't. So why is a pastor telling people that love Christ, you can't talk about Christ in the church? Because he wants to be part of churchianity and not be a part of this where there's division. The gospel, since the very time that Jesus taught, divides. The gospel, since the time of Christ and the apostles, offends. The gospel, since the time of Christ and his apostles throughout church history, converts. And when those are converted, they're converted with a built-in hunger for more of the word of God. There are times in Acts where they actually begged that they'd come and do these things. Preach us more of this. I I can't hear enough. Praise God, I love that. Now, I know that, so that's why I preach the way I do. It doesn't bother me if somebody doesn't like it. It bothers me if I'm wrong in my interpretation of the Bible, because then I'm not helping anybody. So they had a division. An inclination took place. I looked that up in the Greek. That's not a bad way to translate it. So they got together. So people that weren't normal allies, the Jews and Gentiles, now found a common cause. We got to get these gospel preachers out. In fact, let's just kill them to mistreat them and stone them. So they had common cause. Silence the gospel. And so this is an echo. Let me read an echo of what? Acts 4, 25 to 27. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They're praying for truly in this city, they're gathered together against uh, peoples take their stand against the Lord against his anointing. And they pray to his anointed. They pray for God to grant them boldness. So one of the themes in Luke-Acts is boldness. And the reason we need boldness so badly is that everything is directed against the gospel. And people are wanting us to be muted. Don't say those things. Come up with something practical. Preach on something positive. One time, I was preaching on the Trinity and the fact that God is one. And some little kid said yes or amen to that. So some of the people who were disgusted with my preaching said, see how stupid it is to preach on the Trinity and the unity of God because the kids already know that. We know it. Tell us something we don't know. And so they left the church. This is back in the 80s. Now, why would you be offended when the pastor preaches on the Trinity? Well, we already know that. But if somebody comes in with better way to run a business, better way to have happy kids, better way to be, to be happy. Just, oh, that's great. That's something new. I hadn't heard that. Dear ones, we don't need 
something new. We need the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And whenever there is an attack against the gospel, and here they were going to be stoned, so they just went to other cities, and that was God's providential way of bringing the gospel to where it had not been. The thing that they kept asking for and receiving from God is boldness. And what you and I need today in the world that we live in, where all the beliefs, the thinking, the teaching, and the ideas are arrayed against what we believe, and we're seen as the problem people everywhere. What we need to ask God for is boldness. Boldness is always appropriate, not to be rude, but to be direct and clear. Give no offense, Paul said to the Jews, nor the Greek, nor the church of God. We're not trying to be offensive. We're loving, we're kind, we care about people. But we cannot mute the call of the gospel in order to curry favor with anyone. I added uh, a slide to uh, my PowerPoint knowing that uh, Eric is going to be dealing with this. Pray for Eric. He's been very sick. And what I have here is Luther's The Bondage of the Will. And this is very hard to read because it's, I told you before, it's kind of, it was written in German and translated into Old English. So it's very difficult, but it's very important. It was like the lightning bolt of the Reformation. That salvation is a work of God and not a cooperative effort between God and man. And that's what set off the Reformation. So he's rebuking Erasmus and diatribe. One of the points here is the impotency of man in himself as dead sinners. So anyhow, I was talking about the impotency of man. Luther just kept pounding that home. Salvation is a work of God alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. Solas, just preach it. And they said, anathema, 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 anathema. I mean, which means you can go to hell. Luther and everybody who believes what you're saying, you may go to hell. If you don't say that salvation is a cooperative work between man and God, then you've got to go to hell. And we'll tell you what man's part is. And so that was the battle. Now, so Stephen also was subject to stoning. In his case, he stayed there and died. And ironically, Paul was the one who held the coats of the people stoning him, agreeing with what was happening. Now he's the one who's being stoned. And that's in Acts 7, 58 and 59. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would become Paul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here's a faithful witness who wouldn't change his message, who wouldn't change what God had said, who reminded them from their own history how God had worked through the fathers and through David and so on. And he died. And later, Jesus confronted Saul, who was breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord and said to him, why are you persecuting me? But to persecute the gospel preacher is persecute Christ. Now let's go to verse 6 and 7. They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Laconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Notice that. Nothing ever would stop them from doing that. The location changed, but not their message. Dear ones, it doesn't matter where we are. Everywhere in the whole world needs to hear the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that God has ordained that the lost would be saved. Now, I brought along from my uh, packet of slides that I bought to help me preach or teach Acts, a little uh, map. They were in Iconium and they ended up in Lystra and Derby, and there is a map up there that shows that. And I'll read the caption. 
map showing the route from Maconium to Leicester and from Leicester to Derby. This map was created by A.D. Riddle, Riddle Maps, and uh, natural earth was used for the streams and so on. So they traveled quite a long ways with ancient traveling techniques, you know, in dangerous territory, but they just kept going forth with the gospel. Here's a picture. It's more contemporary. Leicester was southwest of Iconium by 22 miles, about 22 miles. So there's Leicester from the south. And here's Derby, 60 miles to the east of Leicester. Here's Derby. Derby, Leicester, map. Ain't I getting creative? Thanks to the PowerPoint. So the conversions and things that happened echo again Acts 4.29 through 31. Let me read that. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Now, remember, they were threatened for gospel preaching. And Acts 4.29, now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, confidence parousia, can also be translated boldness, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place for the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, Acts 4.31, the place where they gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. We have a, I think it's on the front page of CACministry.org. Is that right, Jessica? The one on how to discern a true work of the Spirit? I should get that one back out. It deserves to be preached again. I went through the New Testament and found what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon people or verses that will tell us what happens when the Holy Spirit's at work. And again and again and again. Passage after passage after passage after passage. Preaching Christ, including with boldness, is an indication that the Holy Spirit's at work. There can be signs and wonders that are true and signs and wonders that are false. We can't judge them by whether something happened or didn't happen. We judge them based on who's preached, the preacher or Christ. In Christ is preached, people are converted. So Jesus said he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will testify of me. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will testify about Christ. So that's how you know. Is Christ preached? And if it is, now that can happen in one of these churches that we might associate with Churchianity or Christendom. Because it does. There may be a pastor who really does know Christ, who really does believe the Bible, and some of the churches are so open minded, they're even open minded to that. And they preach Christ. Well, I can rejoice with that. We've got to rejoice whenever Christ is preached. If we're really Christian, we'll always rejoice. Wherever we find the gospel, sometimes in places we wouldn't expect it. Now, I was mentioning Luther and the Reformation, and let me tell you what happened at that time as far as defining the church. And I, I did a lot of church history study in seminary. So now that Rome wasn't the only thing called church, or the most prominent thing called church, The question was, how do we define the church? Because there are all these groups and sects. Rome says, you are all wrong, because look at how many of you there are. Okay, so let me give you what the definition was. How do you know that there's a true church? There's a gathering of people, maybe outside, maybe under a tent, maybe in a building, wherever it is, there's a gathering of church. How do you know a a true church exists? And here's the definition they agreed on. Wherever the word of God is purely taught, and I'm going to use a term that I wouldn't use, but I'm telling you their term, 
and the sacraments are administered according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted that there a church exists. That was the definition. Wherever the word of God is purely taught, the sacraments administered according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted there's a church. So, and the most important thing was the word purely taught. Now, if you, I don't, Eric and I you don't use the term sacraments. We use the term ordinances. Okay? The ordinances, because sometimes sacraments imply the bread turns into the actual body of Jesus in some people's mind. Eric taught about all that. I won't go back over it. But we say ordinances because God did institute those for the church. The Lord's Supper, baptism, the teaching of the Word of God, Acts 2.42, right? Now, that was a good definition because wherever that may be, whatever country, whatever physical structure, whatever situation, there's going to be a church because God is true to his word. And if the word of God is purely taught, some people will, the, will go from darkness to light. The gospel is preached. The gospel is in the Lord's Supper. Did you know that? Well, you would because you've heard Eric preach on it and teach on it. And baptism is gospel-centric. Next week, we're going to have baptism. And uh, baptism, I love 1 Corinthians 10. They were all baptized in the sea, in the cloud, water and the spirit. And what happened when they came out of Egypt? They went down into the water. They got out of Egypt, the old worldly system that was oppressing them. And they came up and the sea drowned the Egyptian army. Hebrew says it's apostasy if you want to go back, if you go try to go back. So, and so Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says in First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, and Adam all died. So we were dead, and in baptism you have a visual demonstration of burying the old man. This dead. And coming back out of the water by type in newness of life. And what you're saying, just I'm giving a preview for next week when people are baptized, is this. That this is a public declaration that I'm committed to Christ. I'm dead to what went before. And this is new now. I am going to walk by God's grace and newness of life. Hallelujah. And these things have been Christian since the days of the apostles. However confused, we can go back to the original scriptures and know what the church is supposed to look like and what her message is and who constitutes the church and how the church was formed and who's the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and so on. And what's the message of the church? The gospel. And so how big or small the gathering is, is inconsequential. That's not part of the definition, the number gathered. Sometimes that's cultural. Not everybody that's a Christian in the world has a great big building to go to. It doesn't matter. It's the people, not the building. Now, let's get a little gospel in here. Not that we haven't already talked about it. This is a slide I made knowing that um, we're going to be talking about this. And Eric's sick, so I want to get this started. This is based on some of the issues that came up in Luther's debate with Erasmus. And what came up was Romans 9 and Romans 10. And I want to see if we can't, we got about 20 minutes unpack this a little bit so we get what the gospel is. Let me, you can turn with me in your Bible, Romans 10, 12 through 14, but I'm going to start in verse 8. So if you want to turn to Romans 10, I'll start reading with verse 8, and let's unpack a little bit the universal call of the gospel and what it means to be saved. Okay? 
Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So here is that the word that is central to salvation. It's near you. Now, the context was a citation from Deuteronomy. It's not up in the... You don't have to go up to go find it. You don't have to travel down to the nether regions. It's near you. And that's the universal call. God isn't saying, spin around five times and spit nickels. Or do some absurd thing that people can't do. In other words, you see, Erasmus cited the part from Deuteronomy and earlier in Romans 10. And Erasmus was saying, and diatribe was the document, that that proves free will. That all men have the power, meaning humans, male, female, to do this without any special work of grace. And that's what the first part is about. And that's not the, Paul's point. The point is that the gospel, the universal call, is reasonable, effectual for those who believe, and designed for humans because it's just saying to turn to Christ and believe what God's already done. You don't have to sprout wings and fly like a bird. This is all very much reasonable. That's the point. And the question is, why doesn't everybody believe? That's another question. But what is required isn't that confusing. But uh, Rasmus in Rome, when they see this, they go, oh, free will, free will, free will. You should see Luther, man, does he tear into that. They find free will everywhere and the gospel nowhere. But the issue isn't how free our will is because, as a matter of fact, it's in bondage. The issue is whether we regenerate it, whether we know Christ. But here's the call to believe. The point is, the gospel is very clear. The terms are very clear. And it's universally given to all. Let me illustrate from Matthew. Matthew 11. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the universal call. And he issued it to his own people. Come unto me. If you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, Now, the implication was the reason they were heavy laden was the religious rulers kept piling more and more on them, tying up heavy burdens, laying them on men's shoulders, not willing to lift them with a finger. So the religious rulers are saying, do this, do this, do this, just like in Luther's day. Give money, build St. Peter's Cathedral, do works, say Hail Mary's, say Our Fathers, do this, do this, do this, do this. Pile it up, pile it up, pile it up. So when do I know my sins are forgiven? Forever, once for all. Well, you don't get to know that. Keep working. So in Jesus' day, they're piling up the heavy burdens, Matthew 11. And the leaders wouldn't do anything. They just said, good, we like to watch you grovel. Now, Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. Now, I hope you can get this. This will really help us when Eric talks about the gospel issue and so-called Calvinism. Listen. There's nothing unreasonable about Jesus offering rest to weary people who are abused by religious leaders. Is there? Is it confusing? No. Come to me, I'll give you rest. That's what he said. Well, what happened? Remember the chapter divisions are artificial. So what happened? Keep reading into chapter 12. Jesus, we won't listen to you talk about rest. Remember, Sabbath is the issue here. Sabbath rest. Because you're a Sabbath breaker. Your disciples are breaking Sabbath. 
because we saw you traveling and they, it was Sabbath and there was a grain field and they picked a few grains and ate them. That's work. So we won't listen. And they have a controversy about who's the Sabbath breaker when Jesus said, I'll give you rest. And what did Jesus end up doing? He said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, if you don't come to me, you're never going to get rest. You're going to be religious and you're going to do works and works and works. And you're going to be abused by oppressive religious fanatics who are over you and they'll never be satisfied and they'll always want more and they'll always demand your money and they'll always demand your obedience. And when you get all done with all of that, you can't go to heaven because the 144,000 already populated it. (laughs) Giving you a little mixed metaphor there. And Jesus said, no, I will give you rest and it's eternal. and No one will take it away from you. Are you tired of working for the religious leaders who keep demanding more from you? Or will you come to me, Jesus said, and receive rest? Some did. And the ones that did in Matthew were people that were disapproved of by the religious leaders. The poor, the lepers, the Gentiles, the disapproved knew they needed rest. And this is what Luther said to Erasmus. The issue isn't free will. It's the issue of the law telling us we need Christ. Look at Matthew 11 and 12 and you see what the issue is. They wouldn't admit they needed rest. They wouldn't admit it. It's not that you can't understand it. And it's not that it's not doable in a reasonable sense because Jesus is offering the gospel and grace. If you come to him, he will give you rest. But they won't. Why will they not come? Because then they'd have to admit their whole system is wrong and it's not going to save anybody. And they'd have to humble themselves and repent. And that makes them very angry. And they want Jesus dead. And that's where that was going. Same thing's going on in Romans 10. It's not in heaven that you go up there. It's not down under the earth. It's not at the bottom of the sea. It's very near you. It's in your mouth, even the word of faith that we're preaching. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, notice objective facts of the gospel, you will be saved. You will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Then it says in verses 12 through 14, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And then he cites this passage, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's your whoever. Now, let me explain this. I've got, I got pages and pages. How will they call on him when they've not believed? How will they believe in him when they've not heard? How will they hear without preacher? Okay, I got it in. There's like 30 pages in here of Luther debating on this. Okay, it says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's Erasmus. The only thing he reads is, whoever will. He stops. And then he says, see, Paul is teaching free will. But Luther was, he's so brilliant. It's unbelievable. He's saying, you're getting everything confused. I mean, all Rastus wants to know about free will, free will, free will, free will. By the way, where it says whoever will call upon the Lord be saved, the word will isn't actually in there. It's just an expression of the subjunctive. If that happens, this is what will happen. It doesn't explain exactly why it happens in some cases and not others. That was explained in Romans 9. Okay? And then so you got to go back to Romans 9. So then they dispute about Romans 9. And Romans 9 addresses Erasmus's very complaint directly. Romans 9, starting with verse 14. This is what Luther and Erasmus debated. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? 
absolutely not. This is after talking about Jacob and Esau and so on. For he tells Moses, quote, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16, here's where Luther and Erasmus really got into the battle. Verse 16, Romans 9. So it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. So Erasmus says it does depend on human will, and Paul says it does not. That's not even confusing. And so Luther says to Erasmus, Paul anticipated your objection. You're the objector. You're the one saying that if the gospel's right, that I'm preaching, that God's not fair, because free will has to be the key. And so he cites this, and he says it doesn't depend on man who will. God's not embarrassed about his gospel. He said it doesn't depend on man who wills. Rome, you're wrong. Diatribe, you're wrong. Erasmus, you're wrong. Depends on God who shows mercy. What does it say? A God who shows mercy. For the scriptures it tells Pharaoh, I raise you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, he shows mercy to those he wants to. He hardens those he wants to. And then verse 19, showing. See, Erasmus would say, well, you misunderstand Paul. No. Paul explains himself knowing that somebody will twist his words knowing what they're going to say. Here's what he says. You will say to me, therefore, you know, critic of the gospel, therefore, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? So Rasmus says, if the human will can't resist, then God can't judge anybody. And Rasmus says, God can't give any moral law unless humans have the ability to keep that moral law. It's Erasmus and diatribe. Luther says God can give every single moral law he chooses to give because God is like that. He's moral and he gives law. And Erasmus, well then, there must be free will to keep it. And Luther says, no. I'm explaining 35 pages out of Luther here. Uh, Luther says, no. The, The imperative of the law is to show man his hopeless and helpless estate. And when he gets to the end of himself, and he knows he's going to fail God, and he knows he has failed God, and he knows he's in darkness, and he knows he's dead, and he knows he can't do it, there, he's at the end of it, and he says, I need mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've failed God. I've failed the law. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven in thy sight. Make me your servant, the prodigal. God help me. I can't do it. I'll never be able to obey everything God said. And Luther was so strong in that. And then comes the balm of the glorious healing gospel saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Now we know that we will have nothing of any value unless it's granted as a gift of God through the gospel according to promise, not according to works. I'm passionate about this because I spent 10 years of my life on this topic because it was the one thing that was attacked by all my former friends. When I became a Bible teacher in the 80s and then kept following the course of the Bible, we kept losing people, losing people, losing people. It's not practical. It's, we don't want to hear any more of this. Give us something that's going to solve problems. We don't like it. We don't like it. So you know what I used to do when they say, I don't like it, I don't like it. I'd read it. Read it again. Read it again. Say, okay, it's my duty to preach what God said. Didn't we agree that I'm supposed to preach what God said? Yes. So you're mad at me because I preached what God said. Well, no, I love what God said. Okay, imagine you're the one who's supposed to be teaching. And this is the verse that came up 
and it's your turn to teach it. How would you teach the verse? It not, does not depend on man who wills. How would you teach it? I don't know, but I don't like it. What, what do I do? I know people don't like it. If you read Luke Acts, they didn't like much of anything God said. But it's the truth. And I can't be embarrassed to teach it to you. And that doesn't make me a Calvinist. It's just what the gospel is. If Calvin happened to get that point right, then fine. But I'll tell you what, Luther really fought a battle over it. That was the Reformation. Dear ones, the evangelical church or evangelicalism in America has abandoned all of this. They abandoned the bondage of the will because they don't like it any more than Rome did. And they think they're not going back to Rome because they add less than Rome did. In other words, we add, raise your hand, sign a card, come forward to the free will decision. Rome had a whole bunch of stuff. So we have stuff, but we just have less. But they're still adding to faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. And once the additions start, you end up with what Brian was showing me, that article, a neogram. Because you need something. Because if you don't have conversion, the pure word of God, a love for the truth, there's things that I have to love because they're the truth of the Bible, even though they're very difficult. I've been struggling for a month to get a sermon together for a week from today on the passage in Ephesians where it said, he who ascended is he who descended to the lower parts of the earth. That's been disputed for 2,000 years. It's my duty to preach it. I got it all figured out. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'll let you judge that. <laughs> But I want to get it right if I can or say I don't know. But I want to try to, to give you the truth. Dear saints, be assured. I want to say what Jesus said. Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Here's the decision you need to make if you want a decision. Are you weary, heavy burdened, and needing Christ's rest? Or are you, do you think you can carry the heavy burdens of the religious leaders by working hard and doing more. Which is it? I'm going to go to Christ and receive rest. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious truth. And thank you for those courageous apostles, Paul Barnabas, who went forth and when threatened with stoning, just kept going somewhere else and preaching with boldness. And may we have the boldness to proclaim the truth today. And we do pray that you bring healing to Pastor Eric so he can be back with us. Thank you, Lord. Oh, and Eric Fredrickson, Lord, we, he needs your healing for his heart. Please touch him, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.